0: Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. We're just going to read just two verses. Actually, not even two whole verses. Determined to go slowly through this greatest gift of love, and so that's why we're doing it as we are. Page 813 in the Church Bibles. Okay, verse 5b there, love is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, love always protects, amen, may God grant us understanding of his word this morning, let's bow please just for a brief prayer. Father we thank you for the the privilege of public worship. We would ask that you would take my words and speak through them, that you would take our minds and help us to think through them, and that you would please take our hearts and set them on fire with a genuine love for Christ and a genuine love for each other and a genuine love for those outside of Christ dead in their sins and bound for an eternal judgment. Now, Father, please glorify yourself as your word is preached. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, if, if it's been a while, we want you to know that we've just arrived, or you've just arrived in the midpoint of our studies in 1 Corinthians 13 and these 15 characteristics of Christian love. And in these studies, we have been acknowledging that while... We might be inclined to approach chapter 13 as a kind of a warm and cozy chapter for husbands and wives and for families and lovers. It is actual, and an actual fact, it is a stinging rebuke to a church, the Corinthian church, which was filled with pride and therefore it was filled with itself and in great need to be humbled by this gift of love in her life we then by way of application said that this is what makes a chapter like this for every honest church akin to sitting on pins and needles or if you would walking through a minefield because because no church is perfect and instead of throwing up our hands and going to the next and perfect place we would need to humble ourselves keep our eyes on ourselves and certainly not others And let this dirt-revealing mirror of chapter 13 do its necessary work. Because, frankly, a text like this confronts us with ourselves. And then we begin to realize that we are not as loving and as easy to be around with as we thought. And so last time we worked through the first seven characteristics of Christian love that Paul provided for us. And we learned that the danger for any local church, which isn't praying, repenting, and trying to apply with the grace of God, this grace of love, is that if we don't do this, we'll collapse, we'll become less than useless, and we'll certainly be unattractive to the watching world. If, you, if we wonder why we're not good by way of attracting to the watching world, this love that we're going to learn about and have been learning about is probably the wonder, one, of the, one of the reasons why. So, while the modern church always seems to be looking for better methods, God's word says, have a better love. Have this love. Now, there's a few things that we need to keep in front of us about this love if we're going to stay on the line that God provides for us in this chapter and so that we won't be led astray. Now, we we did this a bit last time and we're going to work through it again because I think it's absolutely necessary. First of all, this word love that's being used here is not sexual, it's not emotional, it's not sentimental. This love does not begin with a mood, it begins with the mind. Thursday night when I went home, I was incredibly disappointed at the work that I accomplished and so I did my things and I'm supposed to do it on Thursday night and then as the night went on, I set myself to worship. So I had the music out. And I told myself, before I pushed the play button, that this is not mood music, Joe. Right? This is not mood music. This is worship music. Huge difference. So what Paul is saying here is that this love is not a mood, it's, a, it's the mind. It's not a victim of the emotions, it's a servant of the mind. Quoting Leon Morris, this love is a love for the utterly Unworthy. A love which proceeds from a God who is love. It is a love lavished on others without a thought of whether they are worthy to receive it or not. It comes from the nature of the lover rather than any merit of the beloved. So this is a divine love, which is why it is a gift. This is gospel love. We cannot produce this love by ourselves. The only source of this love is God himself. So that our only boast is God when we get it right. Secondly, we said that in the Greek, all these words here are in verbal form, which simply means that the concern here is not what love is, but what love does. Thirdly, we said that these verses tell us how God defines love, because we cannot define love. We're too sinful to do that. And it seems to me that we always try to define things in the days that we live in. This is what the church is, and this is what a Sunday morning is for, and this is what the Holy Spirit does. And we can't do that. We need a voice outside of us, not bound by us, not constrained by us or our context to tell us what love does. Fourth, the word form here, and this is important, is this love is not a one-time deal. This is in the present continuous tense. So it's not shazam and we have this love in full, which is why this love is so forgiving. Right? Right? We always should be patient with things that are growing, right? Moms, when, when our kids were little, or if our kids are little, we don't stand over the crib and say, when are you going to grow up and get a job? No, we are patient with things that are growing. This love is ever growing because it is divine. It is to be practiced. It is to become habitual. It is increased by prayer and repentance and crying out to God to get this right. There's a wonderful hymn that has the line, the love of God is bigger than the measure of our mind. So even when we think we get it right, there's more room to get it right. Fifth, we need to keep our eyes on our own paper when we consider this love. It would be very silly to condemn others in our mind as the text is unfolded. And so we listen to this talk and say, you know what? I know one that is really guilty of not loving this way. No, this is a dirt revealing mirror. We look in the mirror and the only image we see is ourselves. Because the chapter is meant to humble us. It confronts us right? Shows us what's right. Shows us what's wrong. Shows us why we desperately need a Savior. And then the Savior points back to this chapter and says, come along now. Humble yourself. Get very low. And with my help, over the long haul, until your last breath, I, Jesus, your Savior, who loves you, am committed to work this love in you. This is why a text like this is for the church. It makes clear the gospel, right? The bad news of our sin. We're not loving this way. And the good news of the death of the Son of God, Jesus. And that's why that gospel has to be the central theme of any true Christian truth, church. There's no way that the gospel cannot be the bent of a Christian church. So we're not a family church. We're not a political church. We're a gospel church. It's important that we understand that. Sometimes in the life of the church, the complainers are the heroes in the church, right? And those who find fault easily and those who grumble easily and everyone looks to them as if they are seeing things with a better eye. No, actually, they're looking with a smaller mind and a corrupted eye because a passage like this confronts every one of us and makes us all rely on the finished work of Jesus Christ for our righteousness, for our peace with God, for our standing with God, and so on. Philippians 3.3, 3, we glory in Christ and we put no confidence in the flesh. Romans 3.19, uh, God law convicts in such a way so that every mouth be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Who else could we be accountable to? So we need to get right to this, don't we? Number one, if you have a worship folder, you can see this there. Love is not easily angered, right? So the word phrase here is this is a fiery outburst having to do with temper. And the idea here is that Christian love is not easily provoked. But the fact is, is that there are people for all of us who easily provoke us, right? Not always deliberately or knowingly and consistently, but truth be told, uncontrollably. And if you had to describe these kind of people in the most basic way, we could say there are certain people who just flat out get on our nerves. And what's true for us is equally true for them because believe it or not, there are certain people and we get on their nerves. So we've been slighted. We have been mistreated. Uh, the arrogance of another has been just flat laid on our lap. And here they go, come again. And we say to ourselves, if they approach me with one another, uh, another one of those stupid questions and those stupid comments, this time I'm going to let them have it. However, when we do such a thing, the, the tendency to blame the person because of the effect they have on us, so, so we say to ourselves, if they weren't around, I wouldn't feel the way I do. If they didn't show up, I would not be so easily angered. So it's all their fault. When in point of fact, the Bible says, no, this is simply a display of how touchy we can be and how easily we can be angered, even though love is not to be easily angered. So we say of some people, I can't just be in their company. They just get to me, never dreaming that the other person might say the same thing about us justifiably. And not being humbled by the reality and and perhaps saying to God, and listen to this, God help me to help them. I know I can get under their skin. Help me to help them instead of, well, this is me and they're just going to have to deal with it. Love doesn't do that. So there's a good question in all of this. Why are we so easily angered? Here's one answer. We are this way because we are irritated when our self-importance is thought of as being hurt, or our turf is being impinged on, or our rights, or perceived rights, are being violated. And we feel we have to respond because we have every right to respond in this way, and thus we are easily angered all of which is in complete contrast to our Lord Jesus Christ, right? 1 Peter 2, 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So the one who justifiably, you know, from the human perspective, could have struck back with an angry outburst and been completely right, chose not to, leaving the the matter... In the hands of God. Question What was happening in Corinth? Answer They were taking matters in their own hands. And so, Peter, the one who wrote one Peter, obviously, the self control that Peter lacked pre cross, now Peter emphasizes post cross. Keep it in check. Peter would say, because at the most vital time I did not. So in the life of the church, which is our context, our quick response, whether it's external or internal, you know, to hide the reality when we have been broke could be, you know, wait a minute, they, they can't do that to me. Don't they know who I am? This is what's so hard about living in America. I have my rights. And that could be a real problem Especially if our ego is inflated, our, our, our uh, personality strong, our um, self-worth over inflated, or we've been around a long time thinking that all this stuff here is ours, and we get angry. One of the constant problems of the disciples of Jesus Christ when Jesus walked this earth was essentially this. I want to be the best in the group. I want to have the best seats in the house when you take over things, Jesus. It's my right. I want to be the best. Matthew 20. You remember the story, uh, the tiger mom of the sons of Zebedee. She corners Jesus and she says, I want my boys to have the high place in your kingdom. And the other disciples found out and they were like, what? Remember what they said? Oh, you know what? John and James, they're, they're good guys. They could do a far better job as vice presidents for Jesus. Oh, this is wonderful. Good for them. Is that what they said? No, we know what they said because honestly, we would know what we would say. They were indignant, Matthew twenty twenty four. They were easily angered. This is not right. So Jesus must go on and tell them that the servants of uh, the living God, they give up their rights. So he tells them that. And then later on, he's going to show them that when he dies on the cross for other people's sins and give up his right as God and dies. So the root of anger has much to do with a self-assertiveness that we have, so our pride is hurt, we quickly strike back, or maybe even worse, and and in fact, I think this is even worse, worse. instead of quickly striking back, we plan for a delayed attack for another day. Right? I have a cat at home now, I don't like it, but we have it, and I get up in the morning, and I'm I would like, you know, three ways I'm going to die. Number one, I'm going to die in the parking lot, slipping out there. Number one. Number two, late at night, there's a meeting. A bear's going to kill me. That's number two. And then number three, the cat's going to make me fall down the stairs. I'll break my neck and die. Okay? So what he does is he gets in the corner when I punish him correctly. And he waits for me. Right? And he waits and he waits. And I walk by and he's like, meow. Back of the leg. Ah! All kinds of uncommon words come out of my mouth that I would never say. Anyway, just kidding. This is Moffat. It is the self-centered people who are apt to be super sensitive and easily annoyed. And we Christians cannot do this. John MacArthur. Surely one reason for the many mental and physical illness in our society today is the overwhelming preoccupation with our rights and the resulting lovelessness. When everyone is fighting for their own rights, no one can really succeed or be happy. And that was happening in Corinth. When everyone grabs, no one gives, everyone loses, even if the one who gets what they want. To put our rights before our duty and before our loving concern for others comes from a self-centeredness and lovelessness. However, the loving person is more concerned about doing what they should and helping where they can than having what they think are their rights and their due. Love considers nothing its right. and Everything its obligation. It's beautiful, right? Love considers nothing its right. And everything, it's obligation. Well, someone would say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Okay, but that is love, and that is divine love. One last thing, we need to move on. Uh, someone would ask the question, well, wasn't Jesus angry when he, uh, Matthew twenty one eleven? he drove out the buyers and sellers in the temple? Wasn't he angry? And so what was going on there? Well, he was angry, but this is the difference, and listen carefully. Jesus was not reacting to his rights being violated. Jesus' pride wasn't damaged. He didn't want to ruin the services because he, he was mad about something that concerned him. Far from it. His father's glory was being impinged on and he did not want his father to be dishonored in his own father's house. Hence, he tipped the tables and hence he threw out the people that did not belong there. So the anger was concerned for the glory of God and nothing more. Love is not easily angered. Every time we burst into flames in reaction to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we display how little we know of agape love. Having an unhealthy preoccupation with ourself, our rights, and our standing when Master Jesus emptied himself for our sin. Emptied himself for our sin. Number two, love keeps no record of wrong. Logizomai is the verb that's used there. And it's a word that is taken from uh, accounting and bookkeeping. And the idea here is the logging in of the entry in order to make a permanent record that can be called up whenever needed. Let me say that again. This is the logging in of an entry in order to make a permanent record that can be called up whenever needed. So, so this is Dickens' A Christmas Carol, right? And seeing Scrooge, he hunches over his copybook. And he's keeping a vital record of everything that everyone owes him. And he's doing it meticulously in his copper plate handwriting. Well, says Paul, where there is divine love, where divine love has invaded the ordinary Christian life and the ordinary Christian church, it will not, it will not be filled with people who have their own copybooks, and their own copy books are filled with memories of the records of wrongs done to them. Paul says, No, all our copybooks are to be blank. Because, loved ones, only resentment and only bitterness keeps a copybook, whether it's real or imagined. And you know, the, those of us who keep, keep copybooks, typically our, our, our penmanship is perfect. The, the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed, and so the person can restore recite the story of when they received the wrong and having recorded it meticulously, the date and the time and the place. And since they reread it and rehearse it in their minds again and again, when they spew it out, by golly, they could win an Oscar. They're that good at it. Because they rehearsed the story over and over again and again. They kept the copybook, They kept the record. And you would want to applaud to them just for the rhetorical skills of them telling how bad someone was to them. Now, have you ever met anyone like this? You're with them no less than five minutes and they can give you the records of all the wrongs done against them. And some can go way, way back. Things which should have been forgiven as a Christian. Things which should have been buried, right? But, but we keep rising them up from the dead because we keep a record of wrong. I was thinking these are zombie sins, right? They should be dead. But whenever we open our copy book up, here come the zombies, right? And they're, ah, still alive. Slash off their head, ah, still alive. Arm goes off, ah, still alive. And so in terms of Christian ineffectiveness, we'll say, well, you'll be ineffective, I promise you. Because when you and I find ourselves in the position, no matter how well healed, we may appear on the outside. When we play that dirty little game on the inside, we are held captive to the fact that we, we kept wrongs recorded, although love keeps no record of wrong. But we keep them, we hold them, we recite them, we, 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 we like them, we reimagine them, and even use them in our treatment of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we open up a copybook and say, she did that to me and he said that to me. They did this, I wasn't part of that. So, you have to ask yourself this morning, like I did all week do you have a copybook? If you have a copybook, then either rip out the pages with words on them and burn them or get rid of the thing itself. Yeah, but you don't know what they said. Well, okay, well, you think about the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about how he treated us. Think about what we have done and the number of times we have done it. Aren't you glad God doesn't have a copybook with a record of our wrongs? Unforgiveness could be the the chief among Christian sins, maybe, second only to self-righteousness. Paul writing to the church in Rome, Romans 4, 8, blessed is the person whose sins are covered, blessed is the person whose sins the Lord will never count, same root word here, never count against them, not even the slightest possibility that it will count against them. No possibility that God will have his copybook, open it up and say, okay, mister, I want you to read pages three, page seven, 17, and 28. That won't ever happen. The cross destroyed, abolished that possibility. And so when you and I go back into our kind of twisted theology and say, oh God, I remember all those years ago when I did X, and we go back into the garbage can of our, un, or of our forgiven sin, like that's some kind of humble thing to do, the Lord looks back and says to us, what in the dickens are you talking about? What are you talking about? Why? Because in Christ, and you know, this is why public worship is so stinking important. In Christ, every one of our sins wiped away. Everlasting love does that. J.I. Packard, there are two sorts of sick souls. Those that are not aware enough of sin and those that are not aware enough of pardon. And so to have such grace, to be treated this way, to be forgiven, that love then needs to be extended to our brothers and sisters in Christ and certainly to others. Someone once said that it's hard to forget what we need to forget and it's hard to remember what we need to remember. So you remember this, 2 Corinthians five nineteen. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting men and women's sins against them, including the wrongs done against us by those in the family of God. And loved ones, you will never hear God say, there you go again. Why will God never say to us in our sin, there you go again? Well, simply because love keeps no record of wrong. So, why would we do that to others? If our copybooks are clean and we're keeping no record of wrongs, then we will never say, listen carefully, we will never say, this is the last straw. This is the last straw. Why? Because we forgive and we kept no record of wrong. So we're not piling up the offenses and wait till they hit the line. And when they hit the line, then we say, okay, justifies. I can let them have it. No, there is no line. There is no line because there is to be no record of wrong. Now, can you enjoy this liberating fact this morning? I mean, doggone it. All the pages of our life are clean because of Jesus Christ. And can we not extend that grace to others? And as a brief aside, do you see why you can't confuse the providence of God in our life, whether we deem it good or bad, as God getting back to us for some certain past sin? I mean, I would want to say, which sin? Because there's so many of them, which one is it, right? Do you understand this? Yes, sin has has consequences. But it was the Pharisees who thought that their good life meant that they were all right with God, but of course they were not right with God. So some of us need to know this this morning. Don't let your material wealth make you think you're really, really loved or you're not loved depending on the amount. Why should it? Don't let that mark you. Don't let that change your mood about God. Let the cross be the thing. Not your accounts. Not your accounts. Number three. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with truth. And so if you're going to be honest and you think about this for a moment, there is a streak in human nature which would enjoy and even be intrigued by evil, especially evil in others. I mean, why are gossip columns so popular? Why is so much of news set up to be nasty? In chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, we read, a man in the church has an illicit relationship with his stepmother, and they, verse 2, were proud about this. They were delighting in evil. When they should have been filled with grief. Love does not delight in evil. Let me just give you a few examples. When someone in the fellowship has fallen terribly, we don't say in a hap, hap happy way, with our words or with our thoughts, I told you. I told you, I knew, I knew I'd be right. I saw this coming months ago. Why would you rejoice in the evil of you being right about their evil? Didn't you want to be wrong? Didn't you? What about gossip? Gossip is another form of rejoicing in evil because at the heart of speaking about another behind their back is this perverse form of satisfaction of restating their sin to others. Elevating yourself because you didn't do what they did. When other people break down and do evil, there's always this unholy temptation to gloat over their sin. Discuss it with others. Behaving as if something like that would never happen to us. Or, or could never be done by us. Really? Chuck Swindoll said a long time ago, I have in my heart the evil of every man. Why would we delight in the evil of thinking we can never be as evil as the person we're gossiping about? Why do we do that? Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the good. Listen, this is, this is J.I. Packer. If a brother or sister falls, hatred instantly takes delight in proclaiming it to everybody... And It is very urgent that they be convicted and punished where genuine love is slow to expose and reluctant to drag a scandal into the light of day. John 8. You remember John 8? Get, get the hussy out of here. Let's get the stones. Let's get the hussy there. She's a bad lady. Everybody knows it. Let's get the stones because we need to get morality back in this town. Jesus says one line and everybody drops the stones. Do we confront sin? Absolutely. We're confronted in love. With a broken heart and not an eager heart. Our burners are set on low. They're not set on high. Galatians 6.1, Philip's translation. If a man should be detected in some sin, my brothers, the spiritual ones among you should quietly set him back on the right path. Not with any feeling of superiority, but being yourselves on guard against temptation because you might be needing forgiveness before the day is out. If it's true that love rejoices in truth, what truth can be greater than the truth which sets heaven loose with celebration over one sinner who repents? Not a sinner who gets caught and exposed, but rather who repents and receives grace. You know, a person could really blossom in a setting like that, couldn't they? A person could really blossom in a setting like that, but let me tell you where they will not blossom, where there's arrogance and there's judgmentalism and that's the norm and the pointy finger is always being sharpened. They won't blossom in a place like that. Sometimes I think, and this is my opinion, this is why the modern church is, is so horrible and inactive in evangelism because we lead with a pointy finger, not with a contrite heart. Last one, just with a few minutes to go, love always protects. King James Version, love beareth all things. Phillips, love endures all things. And the word means to cover over as a roof, to, to, to bear a load. Proverbs ten twelve: hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all sins. Now, when I say that, that does not mean that we lift up the corner of the carpet in the church and we shove all the sins underneath, right? So love covers all wrong means that we don't talk about sin. We don't confront it. We don't deal with it. We don't discipline it. uh, We don't ask for forgiveness and we don't fight it off. If that is the case, then eventually we'll trip over the rug. Love always protects. doesn't mean we're dishonest. It doesn't mean love justifies sin. But it does mean that love does not expose sin, broadcast sin, it covers over sin, and protects sin. And even when sin has been yielded to, love makes a way so that sin can be forgiven. That's the mercy seat of the Old Testament. It covered over. And it prefigured the perfect and final covering, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ covers the sin. He always protects. Question. Are you a protector? Are you a protector? Do we, do I protect? Or when the sin happens, it's juicy. It was told that during the reign of Oliver Cromwell in England, he sentenced a young soldier to his death. The soldier was engaged his fiance, who, who loved him so, went to Cromwell, Cromwell and, and just begged for his life. "Please have mercy on my beloved." The offense that he committed w- was, was minor, and he even was suspect whether he did it or not. But Cromwell was a proud man, and, and he would not recant. And he announced that at the sound of the curfew bell, the young man would be put to death. So the night came for the bell to be rung, but the bell never rang. The sexton in charge. He he was the one that kept pulling and pulling, but, but there was no sound from the bell. He then goes to the housing where the bell was, and what does he find there? What he finds there is the broken and bloodied body of the young woman who loved her man, and so she had covered her body over the clapper so that no bell would ring and no death would come. Cromwell found out. He commuted the sentence. Loved ones, Jesus Christ is your lover. Jesus Christ is your protector. He covers over the clapper with his body so that no bell will ring. Why does Jesus do that? Because love always protects. I love you with the love of the Lord. I love you With the love of the Lord. As I can see in you the glory of my King. And I love you with the love of the Lord. Let's bow together, please. We're going to sing a hymn and then we're going to take communion this morning. Father, will you please marry each of us to these verses as a church? May the power of the Holy Spirit come because that's the only way it's going to happen that will enable us to hold fast to these words taught us this morning so that we can apply them and we can offer them not only to each other but to the dying world. So, Father, please glorify yourself in these words and help us to think these things through. For Jesus' sake, amen.